Uh, if you guys want to go ahead and get those Bibles opened up to John chapter 19. Looking at verse 31. Lord, we give you this morning time in the word, an incredible account, true historical fact that you're not dead, that you are alive. We know that that has incredible implications for us today, and we pray that you would bring that application, drive it home to our hearts and minds, affect change in us today, Lord. Uh, Lord, just bring victory over sin, bring vision for life, uh, for our lives, bring callings, bring uh, just that wanting to number our days that we would live for this resurrected King with a, a future and a hope in mind. Bring hope for those that have uh, dying loved ones or themselves are towards the end of a life, God. And we pray that we would all just turn to you, our resurrected high priest who every day lives to pray for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, the resurrection account here in John chapter 19, verse 31 through chapter 20, such a thing to rejoice in uh, because it gives us hope to everyone's questions about what's the deal with death uh, and where do we go when we die. We know from the scripture that death has come because of our sin, the wages of our sin and the payment that we receive by us going after our own pleasures is that we plunge the world into death. We plunge nature into death and, and dying with it and decay and corruption as Romans chapter 8 calls it the bondage of corruption. Romans tells us that through one man, Adam, came death, came condemnation. You guys remember great-great-grandpa Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter 2 and 3? Well, also through one man came life and justification and freedom from sin and the hope of life everlasting. And that other man has been called the second Adam, and we know him as Jesus. Jesus came and lived the death that we can uh, live the life that we can never live a life of perfection a life of sinlessness though he was tempted in all points as we are he never sinned and yet he died the death of a sinner he took a sinner's place on a cross he took my place in judgment he took your place in judgment and the wrath of the father was upon him and because of that we have the hope of yeah though death came into the world and it was my fault and our fault Life has also come to the world and all that credit goes to Jesus. And all we need to do is just respond to that. Respond to that hope. Say yes to that hope. Receive that hope. Uh, say I do in a marriage covenant sense uh, to the groom who is Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, 24, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and he said, Jesus is whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death. Anybody ever here feel like death is just nothing but pain and misery? And many of us have been through the loss of a loved one. We go through a period as a nation where everyone is terrified of death. They're afraid of death. They haven't dealt with that death is a reality. And it's ugly and it's painful and it's coming for us. There's no way to escape it. But Jesus has outwitted it. Jesus has conquered it. And because of that, there's hope for us. He literally took the keys of death in Haiti, Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 1 tells us. And he loosed the pains of death. It has no more pain. 1 Corinthians 15 says that death doesn't have a sting anymore. Hell has no victory. It goes on in Acts 2.24 to say, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. 
Oh, they killed him, but he's God. You can't keep a good man down. Amen. He's resurrected. It's just not even possible. Like, well, we really wish it wasn't possible. Like he just couldn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Is that just a setting for our story that's continued weeks of the Passion Week study here in the Gospel of John? We're moving right along. We have the blessing of uh, former live streams on our Facebook page that you can watch, YouTube accounts that you could go back and watch sermons from before, audio podcasts downloaded on those long trips, listen to the Gospel of John up to this point. We're moving ahead, okay? And you're going to love it anyways. Uh, 1931. Uh, good year. Good year, 1931. The Depression was, I don't know. Okay. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies could not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Uh, you guys know when, like, um, Christmas lands on a Sunday? You know, it's just something kind of special, like where there's there's Sunday, which is great and there's christmas which is great and sometimes you know and you're just like it's a high day it's a holy day you know double the holiness i'm telling you all right that's what's essentially happening on this crazy year what are the odds that the year that jesus died on the cross would also land on preparation day for the sabbath passover and sabbath Okay, and so what you have there is just an incredible sovereign moving of the Lord that Jesus's body wouldn't stay on the cross for 36 to 48 to 6 days and get decayed and ripped open by wild beasts. This was a common thing. The prophecies would be fulfilled from the Psalms that you would not allow your Holy One to see corruption. The rottenness isn't going to happen. And one of the ways that God sovereignly did that was Christmas and Sunday. Passover in the Sabbath. Take that body down. Okay? In the words of my uh, wonderful little girl, there ain't no grave that'll hold my body down. And I'm like, do you have to say it like that? That's a little too Johnny Cashy. Um, so it was a special Sabbath. And of course, we see it again. Remember when the Jews wouldn't go into Pilate's um, headquarters because they didn't want to defile themselves during Passover week and all of that? It's like, oh, good on you. Good on you. Way to keep holy. Well, now they're like, well, we better rip that body off the cross because, you know, we don't want it to defile our land due to um, it being the Sabbath. And uh, it's like, you're already defiling yourselves. You're a bunch of sinners, all y'all, okay? And so, uh, as Spurgeon said, religious scruples may live in a dead conscience. That's what's happening here. There's no life. And I'm not picking on the Jews here because it was the Romans as well. And frankly, it's all y'alls and all's me-alls. You know, we're all there, right? We have the need to be born again. We have the need to have an inward change of heart and mind. And any external religious stuff that we try to do to be mechanical and holy, it doesn't suffice. We've got to have a heart change by the grace of God. And so they did do that. They brought him off the cross. Verse 32 tells the story how. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who were crucified with him. And so uh, it's a really gruesome little section here. It's kind of hard to stomach and hard to read. Um, you know, for some reason, they kind of worked the outside crosses first, 
work their way towards the middle and they would break the legs of these victims on the cross. Uh, you might remember just from our study of the cross last week that it wasn't necessarily the uh, nails piercing the wrists or the hands or the feet or the ankles that would do the, do the killing. It was that suffocation would eventually happen because the victims would be too tired to push themselves from their feet and to get those breaths. They would just get too tired, too tired, needing to use their legs to get every single breath and let their chest cavity expand for a breath. Eventually, they would run out of energy and die. And if they were hanging on, the soldiers would just come and break those legs, break those kickstands, break that ability to be able to take that breath. And so they began to move from the outer criminals toward the middle uh, to break those legs. It was a brutal process called, I've read it a many time and still can't say it. This is the first time I'm saying it out loud though, just for you. Curafragium, okay? Furic, you got it. Okay, curafragium, you got it. Okay, so anyways, the breaking of the leg. Something that all crucified victims would go through. Last week I mentioned that uh, in the 70s there was a corpse discovered or a skeletal remains of someone who'd been crucified during Jesus' time. And it gave us a lot of insight on, you know, indeed this was the position of the legs. His legs were bent a certain way. His ankles were nailed from the sides inward on the cross was one way that they would do that. <clears throat> and... Uh, and something that they saw on that corpse uh, or bones, uh, it says that it was definitely subject to this treatment. One of his legs had ex- uh, sustained a clean fracture from a single blow, which also cracked the other, but the other had, in addition, suffered uh, another word that's medical, comminution or something like that. Any doctors here? You told Andy's like, hey, yeah, I know, you have no idea. Me neither. Um, but you just see that this was indeed a practice of ending the life of the crucified. Archaeologically true, written in the word for us, and uh, a common Roman practice to end those lives through asphyxia. Interesting, Spurgeon made this remark that the penitent thief, that thief on the cross who repented and ended up coming to Christ, Later in life, you know, hours from death, uh, the penitent thief entered into paradise that very day, but it was not without suffering. Say rather that the terrible stroke was the actual means of the prompt fulfillment of his Lord's promise to him. By that blow, he died that day, else he might have lingered long. Very interesting, isn't it? That Jesus told that man today you will be with me in paradise. People standing around might have said, he's going to be up there for like six days, man. And Jesus is like, no, we're ending it now. Uh, We're ending it today. Today you'll be with me. And so Jesus's words fulfilled there. So leg breaking is happening. Outer crosses toward the inner in verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So for some reason, there's an unusually speedy death That has happened to Jesus. Last week we finished in around verse 30. That saying that he had uh, bowed his own head. And he gave up his own spirit. Jesus says no one's going to take my life from me. I'm going to give it on my own. And even there he bowed his head. And he gave up his own spirit. As he yelled the words of the champion. It is finished. Te telestai. Paid in full. 
And really, his sufferings ended there. Something to kind of take a a fresh breath of, like all that Jesus went through, the trials, the scourgings, the marching, the walking, uh, the beatings, the the false accusations, the packing of the cross, the crucifixion, and the mocking that happened uh, therein, the thirst, the dryness of mouth. And, uh, and, and now that's done. Like there's relief, right? There's no more suffering and death. The Bible speaks of death as rest. And even for Jesus, there was rest. He had this speedy death was quite surprising. Even to Pilate, Pilate in Mark 15, 44, marveled that Jesus, Jesus was already dead. How did he die so soon? Well, you took him and flogged him for one. Most people don't survive the floggings and the scourgings. So there's that, but Jesus himself just gave up his spirit. So Pilate marveling, how is he already dead? But it was confirmed. Mark tells us it was confirmed and Pilate found out from the centurion that Jesus is really dead. We can give his body over for burial. How did he know it was for sure dead? Verse 34 tells us, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. This verb for piercing could suggest nothing more than a stab or a poke of uncomfortable thing, you know, a sternal rub in its sense, you know, to just, there, is there any life there? But the language that tells us the result of the stabbing shows that there was significant penetration up into the chest cavity. And some medical experts have looked into what was going on here uh, and that there was a large amount of fluid in the um, uh, the pericardial cavity, uh, the, the liner rather between the heart and the lungs and the, the way that the mixtures of the fluids within show that there was something just devastating that this body went through for those fluids to mix and to be poured out of his chest cavity rather than just being sucked into the lungs shows that, that this was an absolute death and that the body went through, uh, a lot of trauma. Uh, and so interesting reads that you guys can do on your own <clears throat> regarding the medical aspect behind that. Some have said a bit sentimentally that Jesus died of a broken heart, you know, uh, that it was his heart that in a sense had burst into the liner around it and, uh, and was poured out through uh, this piercing. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 14, the Psalm of the cross, I mentioned it last week, some 30 specific prophecies of what Jesus went through that in no way could Jesus have manipulated uh, to have happened with him. So sometime on your own, will you read Psalm 22, the Psalm of the cross? It is so exciting. It's changed my life since I was 15 years old. Super exciting. Uh, and one of the things that's written in Psalm 22, this prophecy about a thousand years before Jesus, <clears throat> he writes, <clears throat> the psalmist I am poured out like water. Something that prophesied, you know, this isn't something that you normally see among the crucified. You see, my bones are broken and I died of suffocation. You know, this is, no, I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. Something that you study of the crucified is that the way that their body weight sags against their shoulders causes those shoulders to come out of joint. My bones are out of joint. My heart, listen to this, when we know that the, the spear caused this blood and water to come out. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. And so John records the actuality of what David wrote in prophecy. 
that blood and water came out of the side of Jesus. Why does John write this to be gross or to cause us to squirm? No, but to show that Jesus had really actually died. There's actually people who are critics of the resurrection of Jesus out there who say that Jesus never actually died, but he just swooned from all of the terrible things that he went through that day and passed out on the cross. And John wants to make it clear in just a little bit. He's going to say, I'm an eyewitness of this and I'm telling you, his, his heart burst inside of his chest and was poured out through his side. He was dead there on the cross. The Quran states about Jesus Oh, now this guy's quoting the Quran. You know, well, listen to what I'm saying. The Quran says that they did not kill him. Neither did they crucify him. It only seemed to be so. All right. So there's a lot of critics out there that to explain away Jesus as God, therefore requiring men and women everywhere to bow their knee in humility and declare him to be both Lord and Christ, both Savior and Lord takes humility, we'll try to just go ahead and explain away why I would ever want to bow to that guy. He never even really died on the cross. He died on the cross. Blood and water poured out. Primary reason why John recorded of this, uh, records of the flow of blood and water to prove of his death, but there's some further symbolism that may be read from this. We would do it with open hands and humility and really trying to lean into the rules of Bible interpretation. You guys, there are Rules of Bible interpretation. Peter tells us no interpretation is uh, private and you know any guy can just go ahead and figure out what the Bible says on his own. No, there's grammatical rules. There's ways that we can go back to the beginning and see what the first sense is and the context and the historicity and the grammar and the literary, con- literary context and so on and so forth. Rules that we follow and then there's some things that we try to determine application from. And uh, Chrysostom, just an incredible third century preacher, great evangelist, they called him the golden tongue preacher, and he would preach and people would applaud while he preached, and then one day he decided to preach a sermon on how you can't applaud while I'm preaching, and everybody applauded while he was preaching the sermon on don't applaud, okay, so anyways, Chrysostom, well-respected guy, may have taken um, just a little bit of liberty in saying that the flow of water and blood represents baptism, the sacraments of baptism with the water and blood representing the Lord's table. Um, you know, a, a, a critique of that would be that you just don't see this type of reference in the Bible, this specifically to blood just representing communion, you know. Um, on a secondary level of symbolism that may be helpful, uh, commented on by Dodd and Schneckenberg, Uh, are helpful, but say the blood and water from Jesus's side may be a sign of the life and cleansing that flow from Jesus's death. The blood of Jesus Christ or his sacrificial and redemptive death is the basis of eternal life for the believer and purifies us from sin while the water is symbolic of cleansing and of the giving of the Holy Spirit. So just something to kind of think about, something to maybe read into. Uh, there's an old hymn by Fanny Crosby, late 1800s, early 1900s, called Near the Cross, where she writes, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream, 
flows from Calvary's mountain. A precious fountain. A healing stream indeed did flow from Calvary's mountain. Burge wrote, The long-suffering Yahweh, himself, the rock of the people, discloses himself in his word, his self-expression, who becomes a man and is stricken for his people, that they may receive the water, the promise of the Spirit. We have sung the hymn from Augustus, I want to say Top Lady, great name to have, um, but Rock of Ages, have you heard it? Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. And so, two criminals on the cross, legs broken, middle Lord of life on the cross, no legs broken, side pierced. In verse 35, John's testimony, he who sees has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling you the truth for the purpose of this, so that you may believe. There's a little bit of speculation on who this particular eyewitness of the blood and water might have been. Perhaps one recent proposal being that it would be the soldier who pierced Jesus' side, who was an eyewitness of that. But most understand this to be John the eyewitness, John the, the evangelist. John was big on eyewitness accounts. He writes about it quite a few times in the Gospel of John. We're even going to see it again in John by the next two chapters. We see it in his epistle of 1 John. He's just all about the importance of having people who have seen things with their very eyes, handled things with their hands, like we were there, we saw it, you've got to believe me. Let's even lean on Jewish law from Deuteronomy a little bit, that if the testimony of two or three witnesses, every word must be established, okay? Uh, you read about it in John 21, 24, John 20, 31, just more of that value of being eyewitnesses. And they were written so that you would believe. All that we're going through today, you guys, this talking about the blood and the water and, and the breaking of the legs, these are things that John has written to prompt and to foster trust in Jesus, resting in Jesus, a departure from believing ourselves, all right? Don't believe yourself. Uh, who was it that saying in the 90s, you know, listen to your heart, you know, or whatever, like, don't listen to your heart, you know? Um, okay, the heart's bad, okay? Don't listen to it. Jeremiah tells us, like, the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. We're fallen apart from Jesus. Satan's leading us on the path to hell, and he just likes to dangle those little tasty trifles in front of us to get us to walk away from absolute truth that can be found in Jesus, okay? So maybe let yourself separate from your heart just a little bit, and let yourself come and reason with us from the Bible that you're bad, you've done bad things, you're going to stand before God for those bad things, but he is gracious and merciful and compassionate towards you, and he came and he lived, lived the life you could never live. He died the death for you that you should have died. And if you would just rest on him, fall on him, be humble, be broken like a little child and just weep and cry and get all snotty and just be like, I, yeah, I need you. I need you. I can't do this. I know if I were to stand before you, 
I would be condemned. And so, Lord, give me your mercy. Give me your mercy. And he will hear that. It says in the Psalms that a broken heart and a contrite spirit, he's never denied. He loves it when we say, I need you. But if you're going to puff yourself up and stiffen your neck and harden your heart, just try to make it on your own, the Bible says your mouth is going to be stopped. You're going to be found a liar. And he is going to say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. So which are you? Humble believer? Humble receiver? You can receive the words of John here? You've written all this so that I would believe? Maybe I need to believe in this. Maybe I need to leave this place today a believer. Okay? If you want to sing the monkeys today, you sing the monkeys. Saw her face, now I'm a believer. If you're younger and you want to sing the Trek version, sing the Trek version. Okay, whatever. But be a believer today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in Acts 16. And you will be saved. And not only you, but there's something miraculous that happens when you believe men, heads of the home, women, leaders in your home. You go home and your family gets saved. Just happy. You start discipling, you start praying, start reading the Bible, start going to church, all of a sudden, just by the grace of God, things start happening in the home and people around you start becoming believers and getting saved as well. And John was all about, I've written this so that you would believe. And first John chapter five, verse 13 tells us, I wrote the epistle so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that you would know that you have eternal life. Do you know that you have eternal life? If you were to die today, do you know that you'd be with Jesus in heaven? Are we so ignorant that we don't realize that people die all the time and they haven't planned on that? They are in accidents all the time and they they just were not planning on head-on collisions and deaths and people getting the coronavirus. It is happening. Whatever your political position, people get it and they die from it. It's happened. They were not planning the week before to die. There's a virus right now that could kill you. Where are you going to go when you die? Today you can know that you will have eternal life, life everlasting because of Jesus. So just, even right now, the quiet of your heart. Okay, Lord, I don't know much of this, but I know to the day, today, you want me to believe. So I just confess it. I don't get it all. I don't get it all, but I believe, okay? We're going to see today and next week, he'll help you get it all. He'll help you get it, Okay. These things were written, verse 36 tells us. They were done, rather. The the things with the bones, right? The things with the spear, the blood and the water. They were done that the scripture should be fulfilled that not one of his bones would be broken. Say what? Did you know that there was a prophecy that Jesus' bones won't be broken? Probably many of us would have had broken bones just from the whipping and the beating and the falling down and the walking with the 90-pound patibulum on your back. My son broke his arm this year. It was a horrible, horrible thing. Broke his arm on the trampoline. And we were like, oh yeah, the trampoline. Like everyone's like, yeah, what's why I never had a trampoline. My son broke his arm stepping off of the trampoline. <laughs> you know, it was like, I was just, he literally even did it the right way. I turned around and I was walking and then just, blah, 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 you know, it was like, oh man, it wasn't, he does flips. He rides a dirt bike. He jumps a dirt bike. And he broke his arm by falling off the ladder, getting off the trampoline. Okay. Jesus no falling down, nothing snapped, you know, the knee bone, the thigh bone, whatever the bones are. You guys know them better than me. There's those, it's all connected, I've heard in a song. But Jesus escaped 
prerifragium, right? He escaped it somehow. How did this happen? The, the prophecy would be fulfilled. The Roman soldier was commanded by Pilate to break his legs. And he didn't do it. For some reason, he said, break, break. Look at this guy. He's already dead. Look, no breaking. So that the prophecy could be fulfilled. What prophecy? Well, in Exodus, we read that the Passover lamb that would be slaughtered to cover over the sins of Israel and to let them escape the wrath of the angel of death. It's a type of that to come. It's a type of Jesus to come. The Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus to come. In fact, when Jesus came down in the early chapters of John, John, uh, John the Baptist looked at Jesus, his cousin, and just like had a like, whoa, you're not the kid with braces we used to play duck hunt on Nintendo with. You're, you're the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Okay? He's the lamb of God. Well, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world that was prophesied of in Exodus, none of these lambs were to have broken bones. I don't know if lambs have wishbones. There was no wishbone breaking at the uh, Passover. I don't think they have a wish. Actually, no, they don't have a wishbone. Um, you know, no wishbone snapping at Passover time because that lamb was not to have broken bones. In Numbers 9, uh, 9 12, don't break its bones. In Psalm 34, 19 through 22, we have more of a, of a, we have more of a philosophical sense of the breaking of the bones. Psalm 34, 19 through 22, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord, but the, the Lord, the Lord delivers them, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones and not one of them is broken. Okay, so this is a prophecy of Jesus, the true and best righteous one that's ever lived. Okay, Jesus the righteous goes through many afflictions. Okay, many afflictions are the righteous, but the Lord delivers them and guards all of his bones. So it's speaking to the righteousness of Jesus that day. The Lord's protecting the bones of the righteous there upon the cross. The thief on the left, not righteous, bones broken. The thief on the right, or maybe it was the right or the, I don't know which one was which, but one of them got up on that cross unrighteous, not right, okay? He'd turned, okay? He wasn't right. He was a sinner, destined for hell. Even while on the cross, he was mocking Jesus. And yet, while on the cross, he had repented of his mockery. He had repented of his unrighteousness. He had repented of his self-righteousness. By the way, self-righteousness is unrighteousness, lest ye be deceived. And he had responded to the righteousness through Christ that comes by faith. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, you'll be with me in paradise. In Luke 2347, one of the centurions guarding Jesus said, certainly this was a righteous man. Even as he glorified God, it says. Verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So 
One scripture that's fulfilled here. We got a lot of scriptures as we've been going throughout the weeks. We got all kinds of things being fulfilled. One of the more recent ones was uh, they cast lots for my clothing. Remember that Psalm 22. Uh, one of them was speaking of the thirst that he experienced on the cross. His tongue clings to his jaw from Psalm 22. So many prophecies that were go- prophecies that were going through, and John is kind enough to help reference some of them as prophecies fulfilled. No bones being broken. Prophecy fulfilled. Um, here we have, uh, they shall look on him whom they pierced in verse 37. Okay. And, uh, that's Psalm 22, uh, or rather that's actually in Zechariah. So, but before we get to the Zechariah, we want to note something. So are we all in 37 together? Sorry. I'm like a little scattered. Okay. Psalm 22, Psalm of the cross shows the immediate context of the piercings. Psalm 22 says, dogs have surrounded me and not in a playful way. What's up dog or sweet little puppies? No, they were speaking of Gentiles. Okay. Gentiles, non-Jews surrounding. And then even Roman soldiers were called dogs. Okay. By the Jews. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And then they pierced my hands and my feet. Okay? So there's immediate aspect of the prophecy uh, that they would pierce my hands and my feet. But then there's a future aspect of the prophecies of the piercing. In Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah chapter 13, they reference his piercing. And in Zechariah 12, 10, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So a future aspect of this prophecy that they will look on him whom they pierced hasn't even happened yet, you guys. It's going to happen when Jesus returns during his second coming. In his second coming, Jesus is actually going to come to the earth. I'm not talking about the rapture, okay? I believe in the rapture comes before the second coming and that we go to the Lord, meet him in the clouds. When we talk second coming, we got Jesus coming back. He's coming with 10,000s of his saints and he's coming back and he's gonna set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he's gonna hang out and stay here for a thousand years ruling and reigning from his throne of David. I see a lot of confused faces and I'm just telling you, we just spent a year and a half, two years going over this. Go back to those podcasts I was talking about, the book of Revelation, okay? Go there, all right? But just to let you know, Jesus is coming back. He's gonna set his feet on this earth. You can go to the mountain next November with us where he's coming back. And as he's coming back, the Jews are gonna look at him and they're gonna go, whoopsies. Okay, right, Mark? Whoopsies. Okay. I kind of heard about this one. You hear about this one? Yeah. Oh, oh no. Because they're going to look on the one that they killed. And by the way, hopefully you've been here long enough that you know that I would also say that I killed him with my own sin. And you killed him with your own sin. But there's a level of responsibility with the Jews and the Romans as well. And the Jews will look on him and they pierced him through the hands and the feet. Gentiles will look at him and they'll go, we pierced him through the side. And then they will grieve as if they had just lost their firstborn child. 2,000 years or whatever it's been and we have been so ignorant 
And we have been so rebellious. And in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, it says that someone's going to say to him, and it's almost so innocent, it's like a little kid looking at dad's calluses, you know, or something. Where are these wounds from between your arms? And he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Where'd you get, where'd you get these? Man, I I got them when I just came to like help people. Okay. Zechariah 13, one, going back just a little bit, tells us, but in that beautiful day, a fountain will be opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And someone said in my reading, no doubt the water and the blood reminded many of Zechariah 13.1 that in the day that Messiah comes, a fountain of grace and mercy will be poured out on Israel. It would be hard for them not to reflect on the flow of blood and water from Jesus' side, the promise of the Spirit and the cleansing and life that issued from these new covenant promises. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him. Second coming, everyone will see him. Rapture of the church, no one's going to see him. We're taken to him, okay? Uh, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, Revelation 1.7 says. Moving right along. Guys, we got some ground to cover. Are you ready? After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews... Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea appears in all four Gospels, but only in connection with the burial of Jesus. Only John adds that he was secretly a follower of Jesus because he feared the Jews. Now, normally, all those secret disciples out there get a bit of an eye roll from the public disciples. Secret disciple, you know. But all of a sudden, he takes courage. Something about the cross just mustered strength in him to go and to get the body. One man said, Joseph, as... I'm learning a lot of new words this week. Exculpates. Oh, you've used it so much, haven't you? Joseph exculpates himself by the courageous action he now understands. One might say to Joseph, I see your true colors shining through. His true colors now show. Might have been a secret disciple, but a real disciple? I don't think anyone can stay in that secret category for too long. They'll be pushed out of it, drawn out into the light. It's noteworthy but not psychologically incredible that after having so cautiously concealed his adherence to Jesus' cause from his fellow counselors, this Sanhedrin member now throws caution to the wind, F.F. Bruce says, and shows those true colors. Matthew tells us Joseph was a rich man. Mark tells us that he was a prominent council member among the guys that were crucifying Jesus. That he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And that he came and he took courage. Luke tells us that he was a good man. That he was a just man. Luke tells us that he had not consented to the council's decision. Nor their deed. And he came showing those true colors. Very boldly comes before Pilate. 
for the cause of someone who'd just been accused of sedition, this, I mean, it could have been Joseph's doom as well, but he came and he took courage and he asked for the body. Pilate gives into the request, probably because he knew Jesus was never guilty in the first place, and also probably to stick it to the Jews one more time, if you know the story. And Joseph would then go about this gruesome and difficult task. A removal of a bloody, dirty body of Jesus from a cross. The prying of the iron spikes must have been a very difficult, practical, and emotional task. Leon Morris says the Jews of that day regarded proper burial of the dead as the most important thing. Many went out of their way to see that fellow countrymen received proper burial, and this may have had something to do with Joseph's action. Spurgeon said, God used these men to protect the body of Jesus. As Achilles dragged Hector by the heels around the walls of Troy, so would Satan have liked that men should have mauled the dead body of Christ. He would have cast him to the dogs or for the kites if he would have had his way. But so it must not be. And so verse 39, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Now Nicodemus is only mentioned by John's here. John is telling us that from chapter three, finally Nicodemus, Nicodemus is stepping out into the light and is not himself going to be a secret disciple. Uh, we're kind of like slowly making our way through that movie series, The Chosen. And uh, we like to do it on the Lord's Day when we're together as a family. And we watched one recently where Nicodemus, who'd spent the night visiting with Jesus and yet had pushed away, stepping out as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a moment where Nicodemus is like so drawn to go on the mission trip to Galilee with Jesus, but he just can't do it. And he weeps. Because he watches Jesus go off on mission with his disciples and he himself has not yet been born again. And he weeps because he's resisting and he's bawling. And I had Tatum, my little girl, on our lap. And Tatum's like, why is he crying? And I'm trying to explain like, well, he, he's drawn, but he hasn't yet decided to follow Jesus. And she just starts bawling for Nicodemus. She just starts crying for Nicodemus. We have to pause the movie and I have to tell well, this, no, no spoiler alerts, right? But we are told later on in John that he actually does come and he helps bury Jesus. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And, uh, and so she, but she still cried and still bawled. And then like later on that day, she's just like sobbing, like, what is your issue? You know, that Nicodemus guy, you know? And, uh, but he brought about a hundred pounds. So Joseph of Arimathea is more in charge of the burial. Nicodemus seems to be more the preparation of Jesus's body. hundred pounds is a normal amount that they would use to bury a body, especially a special body. And uh, at a guess, Joseph would see to the legal steps while Nicodemus secures the spices. If the worship team will come up. I want to close with reading something um, that I found impactful today. One of the customs of the Jews in uh, preparing a body for burial is the requirement to remove all foreign matter from the body and to carefully wash it. They examined his entire body and found broken pieces of thorn all over his head. They saw his bloody, matted hair, the terrible bruising of the face, and the areas of beard pulled out, the dry and cracked lips, They turned the body over to see his shoulders and arms are riddled with splinters. Each one was removed with care. 
The back from the shoulders down was a bloody open wound from terrible scourging suffered before the crucifixion. His hands and feet were smashed and bloodied. On the front, just beneath the rib cage, there was a gaping wound made from the spear thrust that confirmed his death. Worst of all were the eyes that did not open, the voice that did not speak. We can only imagine what deep, lifelong impressions this left upon both men and how for the rest of their life, the smell of those particular spices would bring back every mental detail. As these two men did this, men who were experts in the law, they must have known that they were fulfilling prophecy. The prophecy of Isaiah 53, 9, that they would make his grave with the rich at his death. This was a strange work for these two men to do. Yet it was also strange that Jesus, in the plan of, the, in the plan of Godhead, passively submitted to it. Conceivably, after Jesus accomplished all things and yielded his life, Jesus could have sprung from the cross in a superhero-like flash of power and glory for five minutes or five seconds after his death. Yet in the plan of God the Father, he hung lifeless on the cross for some period of time, long enough for Joseph to gain audience with Pilate and receive permission to get the body. He hung on that cross until his body was laboriously removed and hurriedly buried according to Jewish custom. And so they, verse 40, took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom is of the Jews to bury. And so they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So as we just close our Bibles and set our things aside, all of these things written, detail given to us, Not to give us some emotional goosebumps or certainly not to make us feel good about ourselves, but to drive us down the avenue of faith in Jesus. And maybe you would just bow your head with me right now and close your eyes and, and let the Lord do a work in you today. Just today, would you pray with me in your heart? Lord, here I am, finding myself in a church, having the Bible read over me, having a man try to bring the sense of it and make sense of it, and finding its words pressed into my heart. And today I am made aware of that I am a sinner and that you are a savior. That no matter how deep my sin has gone, your love has gone all the more deep. And I see that today in your death on the cross, in the preparation of your body, and to know that you really truly died and laid down your life as a sacrifice for my sin. Will you forgive me of my sin, Lord? Will you let me be a follower of yours? Help me to be a servant of yours. Give me the Holy Spirit so that I can live for you today. 
want to be a Christian. And all of us would pray together. Lord, we are humbled by this love that you've shown us. The brutal things your body went through, that tent that was made for the Godhead to dwell, for the second person of the Godhead to dwell in. The pain that you went through, but that it was finished. Thank you that you were buried so that you could rise as an example to us that even when we're buried, physically, emotionally, you have resurrection life for us. Let's stand together today and let's rejoice not only in the death of Jesus for sinners, but in the burial of Jesus for sinners. It's an important thing, the burial, showing that he was indeed dead so that he can show, we'll see it next week, that he indeed lives. Go ahead, Adam.